Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have Joseph Maiolo on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Cry Havoc, How the Arms Race Drove the World to War, 1931 to 1941. It's common among historians today to call World War II Hitler's War. He, after all, planned it, and he armed Germany in order to prosecute it, and he started it in 1939. All this is true. But it's interesting to speculate, as Joe does in this book, as to what might have happened had there been no Hitler. Would there have been no second great European conflict. Perhaps the most fascinating thing about this book is that Joe makes a pretty good case that there would have been some sort of great conflagration of a World War II type in Europe, even if Hitler had not taken power. And the way that he shows this is that the mindset of politicians and military planners after the First World War was such that they felt the need to prepare for a World War I-style conflict even immediately after World War I. In other words, they were dedicated to the notion that in order to successfully prosecute a modern military campaign, the state needed to take control of the economy. In other words, they were convinced that a new kind of militarized state was necessary. And as Joe shows in the book, the leaders of nearly every European country dedicated themselves to the creation of what was really a military-industrial complex, a new kind of state. Now, in this context, the origins of World War II look somewhat different. After all, the Germans and the Soviets particularly were very uncomfortable with the settlement at Versailles. They felt they had been treated badly. They knew that there were territories that were once parts of their empire that had been taken away. And now, in light of the creation of this military-industrial complex, they had the wherewithal in order to do something about it. So perhaps, just perhaps, had there been no Hitler and no Stalin, the Europeans may have gone at it in any case. Maybe, maybe not. In any event, this is a very interesting book, and I really enjoyed talking to Joe today. And I hope that you enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, Joe. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? Uh, not bad, and yourself? Uh, I'm very well. Thank you very much. Today we have Joe Maiolo on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Cry Havoc, How the Arms Race Drove the World Tour 1931 to 1941. Um, as I was telling Joe in the pre-interview, uh, this book has some terrific insights in it. I, I thought that I knew most everything about the run-up to World War II. That turns out to be false. Uh, Joe does some really uh, interesting and, uh, I think, counterintuitive thinking about the origins of the war and the way it was prosecuted, and also... Uh, its fallout, and, and this has particularly to do, and this is something I want to talk about during the interview, with the um, growth of the military-industrial complex well before Eisenhower even thought of it. I think that's one of the theses of your book. So uh, we'll, I hope we, have right. a chan- yeah, we hope we have a chance to get to that. But why don't we begin the uh, interview with having, by having you say a few words about yourself. Um, 
Well, um, I'm Canadian. Uh, I was uh, born and raised in Toronto. Um, I studied uh, history and philosophy at the University of Toronto. I did a BA and a master's degree there. And, um, well, I've always had a passion for history and particularly the history of international relations, the history of war, military history. And um, I suppose it's not surprising that I ended up studying the, the, the or making the Second World War the, 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 the central part of my academic life because uh, in the neighborhood I grew up in, um, we were surrounded by people who had lived through the war, experienced the war. Um, our local dry cleaner had been at Stalingrad with the Red Army. I mean, oh in, <laughs> you know, in the neighborhood, there were probably men he'd fought against. Yeah. Um, but um, I decided to uh, uh, pursue my interest and uh, write a doctorate. And I left uh, Toronto for London in 1991. And I went to the LSC to study under Donald Cameron Watt, mm-hmm. who's... Um, uh, was one of the renowned historians of the 1930s and uh, wrote uh, probably the best book on the origins of the war uh, in Europe, How War Came. And uh, under him, I wrote a PhD thesis about Anglo-German uh, naval arms control and competition in the 1930s and how uh, naval negotiations and the whole story of uh, Anglo-German naval rivalry was at the heart of a uh, well British appeasement, but also Hitler's view of Britain. Um, Anyway, I finished the, the PhD at, in, at the London School of Economics and, and never really left the UK. Um, and I've, I've taught at various uh, uh, British universities, uh, Leicester, Leeds, and, and now uh, since uh, September 2001, King's College, London. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I've actually read uh, How War Came, and I would like to recommend it to the listeners of this book because it's uh, – also, I just really like the title. Yes, that's a brilliant title. <laughs> you know, the simple, straight, direct English language. I just, it's really, it's, it's absolutely poetic. So kudos to him. Is he? I hate to say this, but I know that he's, he's. You you dedicated the yes. book to him. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. I dedicated the book to him. That's yeah, right. pardon me for answering this, asking this question, but I don't really know. He's still alive. Yes. Uh, he's still alive. That's yes. right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how old he is. For all I know, he's in my age. I I just don't know. But um. The, uh, but anyway, kudos to him for writing the book and for producing you. I hope he listens to the show. I, yeah. um, so in any event, tell us how you came to write Cry Havoc. Um, well, it, it, in, in some respects, it sort of emerged from, from, from my Ph.D. work and, 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 and later writing about uh, naval competition in, the, in the, the 1920s and 30s and naval treaties and that sort of thing. But it, it really basically stemmed from a, a real dissatisfaction with the way in which the whole – Interwar period, and particularly the run-up to the war, was, was is is treated by uh, international relations specialists and uh, also military historians. Um, the decade leading up to the war is normally recalled as sort of uh, the story of how wicked uh, and cunning dictators outwitted and outarmed and mm-hmm. uh, uh, naive appeasers, the dem- you know democracies, uh, what have you. Um, and that's the accepted wisdom. But I I I, I knew. F- from my own work, that it, the fundamentals of it were not true. Um, and there was also another uh, dimension to this, which is simply um, uh, much of the story of the 1930s is reduced down to simple choices. You know, if only uh, um, we'd have had Chamberlain or Churchill as prime minister earlier and someone had stood up to Hitler, well, the whole story of the 1930s would be different. And, and um, I don't think the, the, the period can be reduced to those sorts of simplicities. And I started to look, uh, again, related to my, my, my other research, at um, how 
various arming strategies of different countries, again, particularly navies, interacted. And it occurred to me that so much of the literature uh, is compartmentalized in national settings. I mean, we all, we all tend to, you know, as historians, to pick a country and stick with it. And so we write the internal history, the military history of Germany, or the economic history of the Soviet Union, the political history of fascist Italy. But putting those things together and understanding how they interact, well, that's, that's well, it's a big job for one thing, mm-hmm. but it's also not normally done. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing the history of armaments, so the history of a military strategy of a particular country, well, it's aimed at something, something abroad, aimed at other countries. And uh, competitive arming is a process of arming, counter-arming, and responding again, and it's interactive. And uh, the effects of arms races uh, uh, ripple through the international system. They are like waves, uh, cross currents, uh, crisscrossing frontiers. So I I, I realized the only way I was ever going to understand this big picture of how the arms race was a cause of war was to put the whole global story of competitive arming together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the deeper in I dug and, the, and the, 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 the more archives I looked in and the more books I read, the real, and I just realized the, the, the immensity, but also the interconnectedness of the whole story. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just decided to write it up. And, um, well, that's, that's been a 10-year... <laughs> <laughs> Project. Yeah. Right. I, I started the day I arrived at yeah. uh, King's College, yeah. and uh, in fact, it was uh, 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 funny enough. It was the tenth of September, uh, uh, two thousand and one, uh, and I've been I've worked on it uh, ever since, and uh, it was published uh, last year. Well, you know, that's they take as long as they take. That's yeah, what, that's what I tell people who publish my books and encourage me to write them. I <laughs> think the story is as complicated as it is, and they take as long as they take, and that's really all there is to it. So. Don't rush me. The, uh, one of the things that I find most fascinating about this book, and I find a lot fascinating about it, is um, something you don't dwell a lot on, but uh, I think is clear in the, uh, in the kind of background of the book, and that is your understanding of what the statesmen of Europe took away from World War I. Most of the attention that historians give to these things, and I'm sure this is true in the popular mind, has to do with dissatisfaction with Versailles. This is yes. one of the fundamental causes. But uh, you talk a little bit about the the military lessons learned by World War One and their impact on uh, future, I guess, military planning. Maybe you could begin by talking a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, um, again, because uh, military historians or political historians tend to uh, uh, focus on a particular country, everything seems unique and and. and particular and peculiar to any one national setting. Um, but the, you know, looking at the military plans and the, the basic uh, uh, um, uh, armaments politics of every country, I realized that, in fact, it's all really the same. Everyone had learned precisely the same lessons from the First World War, and they were simple. That if you, uh, the First World War was a total war, um, everyone entered with plans that it would be over in a few months, it would all be over by Christmas, but of course it wasn't. And the, the First World War became a race to arm men, produce munitions, produce shells, uh, and to put the biggest armies into the battlefield in these huge battles of attrition. And what everyone realized is if you were going to win the next war, you had to turn your society and your economy into a gigantic war machine. So that was, that was the universal lesson. And, you know, some... some 
ideologies, uh, fascism in particular and Nazism, embraced this as fundamental to their understanding of the way in which societies should be organized, economies should be organized, and the nature of international life. Um, I also, as, 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 as I'm sure you read, uh, also argued that in the Soviet Union, this was fundamental to Stalin's plan for industrialization, turning the Soviet Union into a, a huge industrial bas bastion for waging total war. But the, the, the lesson isn't simply uh, uh, learned in uh, the, 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 what we normally would describe as the totalitarian states uh, in Europe, but also in Japan. Japan's not a direct participant in the First World War, but there were a group of uh, senior uh, economic officials and military officials who learned the fundamental lesson that if a power is going to be a great power, it has to be able to wage a great war, and if it's going to be able to wage a great war, it has to command within the frontiers of its country or its empire all the resources it needs to wage that war. It needs to have a huge industry ready uh, and equipped to begin to switch from civilian production to military production. And also you need to be able to regiment society. You need to be able to convince people uh, uh, to work and to fight towards a single cause. So you, you get a group of uh, military officers in particular in Japan uh, who Michael Barnhart, uh, uh, a superb historian of Japan, uh, labeled the total war officers because they saw it as their mission to prepare Japan for what would be the inevitable, a big future, war, uh, future total war. And so Japan had to be turned into uh, a state capable of waging that kind of war. And they launched a military conspiracy in 1931 to conquer Manchuria in order to give res relatively resource-poor Japan the resources it needs to counter the threat, the emerging threat from the Soviet Union. Uh, again, the lesson isn't lost uh, in Western Europe. It isn't lost anywhere, in fact. Everybody, all military men worldwide agree that if you're going to win the next war, it has to be done uh, uh, by pre-war planning that essentially gives the military men control over the economy and society and the ability to plan. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was, I was thinking one of the things that you learn in the insular world of uh, Soviet history, which is something I've done a lot of, is that Lenin, um, when he was thinking about what socialism might look like, in, yes. the, in, the, in the late uh, teens and early 20s, he said, well, it would look like the German war economy during the First World War under Erich Ludendorff. Exactly. That, that, <laughs> that should have been everybody's initial sign that something was going horribly wrong. The Germans have figured out state planning, he said, and we should really do what they do. And I'm like, yeah, that, wow. Um, well, but it did seem very progressive at the time. It, and it was. I mean, I, I think, I think the... the, 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 the What's been lost in, in, in the way we remember this period is that planning, uh, 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 central state planning was a relatively it, – it was, it was politically neutral. It belonged to the right and the left. I mean uh, it's the center that disliked it, uh, the liberal center. Um, but there was nothing particularly uh, 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 socialist or communist about planning nor particularly fascist. They both embraced it as a means of um, – uh, 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 unfolding grand visions, and um, of course, uh, um, the other thing that I picked on uh, up on in in reading about, of course, the New Dealers and the the the, the brains trust around um, uh, Roosevelt, of course, is that these men were also highly influenced by the 
lesson of the First World War. If you, you know, what, uh, if you want to control an economy, you want to control markets, you plan. Um, and again, it's the same. The same is true in in, in Western Europe. Uh, the French socialists also embrace planning as a way of countering the ill effects of communism. And of course, with the onset of the depression, uh, this 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 single idea that planning will give you the key to uh, um, well making uh, uh, either subverting capitalism or making capitalism work, uh, it becomes a universal. Uh, uh, um, universally pers persuasive idea. Um, and of course, this meshes perfectly with the idea of military men, that if you want to win the next war, well, guess what? A planned economy, to have a planned economy is the best way to do it. Mm -hmm. And this caused a kind of odd, what we think of as odd fascism envy, or even communism envy within, yeah. within Western Europe. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, uh, again, the, the 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 lessons being universal, um, when 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 the arms race uh, gets underway, which I sort of really dated about 1935-36 in 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 Europe, um, there's a certain logic, and it's an it's an emulate or capitulate logic. You either begin to prepare to turn your society into a, 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 a vast war machine, you begin to close off your economy and gain control of the resources that you need. Or you're going to lose the war. Mm -hmm. Sorry, did you want? Yeah. No. So go ahead. I was going to ask how you know. In terms of, I'm always interested in these kind of um, logistical questions. Uh, how do you go about doing something like that in a um, in a in a liberal capitalist economy? I understand exactly how the Soviets did it. They did it with um, socialist ideology, uh, forced labor, and gulags. That was not, uh, I won't say it wasn't difficult for them. Uh, it was difficult in terms of um, the total cost in um, both money and lives. But h how do you uh, take a society like the United States or Britain or, or France or something like that and institute that level of control? Was there a, a large political battle over this? And in what terms was it fought? Well, it, in, in, and indeed, this is, this is uh, uh, what I hope uh, readers will take away from the book is this one of the uh, um, uh, important themes is that for obviously once the arms race gets underway, those uh, societies dominated by uh, uh, militarists in Japan or, or 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 fascist and communist ideologies, making this choice going down the totalitarian track is not a difficult one. But for the democracies, France, Britain, and then the United States, obviously uh, emulating the totalitarian states is exactly the road to ruin. You sacrifice all those things that that, that make you what you are. Mm -hmm. um, so there are battles that break out, particularly in France. It's extremely difficult. Um, with the um, election of the Popular Front government in, uh, under Leon Blum, the socialist leader, in uh, the summer of 1936, uh, Blum, uh, understanding the threat from Nazi Germany, launches and approves of this enormous uh, rearmament plan. Um, he also uh, institutes a large-scale sort of new deal at the same time. And what happens is, of course, is that the financiers begin to ship uh, bet against the franc. Um, money starts, you know, France bleeds gold and, and currency. And the solution to this is obvious. It's the solution that was adopted by Nazi Germany or the Soviet Union. You control the economy, you, you control currency flows. But 
Bloom understood that the second you start to try and control the economy in that way, well, it becomes a slippery slope into fascism. Mm -hmm. And of course, for the right, which dominated financial and industrial circles, if Bloom had tried to control the economy in that way, it would seem to them that he was signaling the onset of communism in mm -hmm. France. Mm -hmm. So you, could, you, you can just see how explosive these politics were. And of course, if uh, France had adopted exchange controls and a closed economy, that would have alienated France from uh, 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 Britain and the United States, even though actually uh, uh, the U.S. Treasury gave sort of a nod to Bloom that it, they, would, they would accept it for a period of time. In Britain, um, you have Neville Chamberlain, who really is at the heart of the um, um, British response to Nazi Germany all the way right back from the early uh, 1930s. He was Chancellor of the Exchequer until 1930, May 1937 when he becomes Prime Minister. And early on, um, Chamberlain and other, other uh, 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 defense planners understood that um, you had to make a choice between guns and butter and you had to have some sort of combination that uh, you, you don't go all the way out for guns because then you turn your again you turn your society into a fascist state. What's and you know what is the point of doing that? You, it's it's the equivalent of capitulation. Um, and Chamberlain and other planners land on a single idea: deterrence. Mm -hmm. We can buck the totalitarian trend driven by the arms race by deterring Germany from uh, 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 rearming further, the, from persuading Hitler and the circle around him that you can't actually launch a successful war. And the way to do that, of course, is to build up a huge air force. Um, but of course, at each stage of uh, British rearmament and at each stage of the rearmament plan, um, British rearmament planners feel they're further and further behind. And this creates tension between, the, for example, the aircraft industry, uh, uh, central planners in the air ministry and uh, the, the, the conservative party around Chamberlain. Everyone is worried that the deeper and deeper you go into rearming, the greater and greater the danger of sliding into some form of fascism. Mm -hmm. Now, for some, actually, that's, that's not such a bad thing. Um, but for most, that's the choice of defeat. And again, we see precisely the same cycle um, in, the, uh, uh, in 1939, 40, 41, uh, occur in the United States under Roosevelt. He's making precisely these same calculations. How far can we rearm against a totalitarian state without succumbing to totalitarianism? And he actually lands on precisely the same solution that Chamberlain does. We'll build up a huge air force. And before France fell in the summer of 1940, his idea was, well, we'll sell the British and the Germans all the bombers they need to bomb Nazi Germany and fascist Italy into oblivion. But of course, that all goes badly wrong uh, when France falls. Mm -hmm. And oft afterwards, um, uh, you know, American, when American rearmament gets underway, there's an enormous political battle between, well, you know, the Republican and uh, uh, Democrats who embrace the idea of New Deal and central planning. Um, how can you arm against the threats? and particularly the threat of a totalitarian superstate that stretches all across Europe and controls the resources of Eurasia without succumbing to totalitarianism. And, and um, um, that is the bloody debate of 1940-41 in the United States. Mm -hmm. There are just a couple of really interesting things here because most historians, and I think um, people that read history, are, are now more or less convinced that 
centrally planned economies, at least most of them, are, qu are very inefficient compared to a well-regulated market economy. But that's not what people thought in the 1920s or 30s, was it? I mean, they looked at the Soviet Union and they looked at Germany in the mid-30s and uh, they saw something quite different, didn't they? Well, in fact, the funny thing is everybody saw something quite differently looking abroad. <laughs> nobody, nobody understood just how badly everything was going in everyone else's yeah. uh, state. So, yeah, uh, um, the, the, the great irony is amongst the fascists and uh, the Japanese militarists, the state they admired most, the, the power they admired most, of course, was the Soviet Union and the five-year plans. This was the way you go. This is the way you go about doing it. And, of course, Hitler... Uh, 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 admired Soviet arming for precisely these reasons that um, you know we, we needed to do the thing the way the things the way that uh, the Red Army and the Soviet uh, 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 economic planners are doing it and of course as we know and as you know, as you know uh, through your own work <laughs> the five year plans were not executed with superbly well uh, and there was a lot of tension in what actually operated like a market like exchange between uh, uh, the military, the Red Army, and um, uh, the central economic planners, because of course Stalin would allot so many rubles for them to spend, and uh, 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 the, the 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 battles between them, because of course the economic officials didn't really want to devote uh, uh, everything over to arming and be subordinate to the military. Uh, so they, you know, they 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 used things like secrecy uh, uh, regulations to subvert uh, scrutiny from the army over. Uh, um, per unit cost of tanks and planes right. and that sort of thing. And of course, in Britain and France, they tended to look to fascist Italy and Nazi Germany and say, well, listen, across the frontier, workers are regimented. The factories work 24 hours a day. There's a central planning organization that's this Machiavellian genius mind at the center. <laughs> <laughs> everything's running superbly well. Yeah. Uh, and we need to do that, yeah. and, and you know that's the attraction, that's the pull to, of the military men in Britain and France. They're being attracted to these ideas, like everyone else, because they learned. Everybody learned the same lesson from the First World War. You had to sacrifice freedom to planning. Yeah. Uh, democracy was not compatible with waging total war, and the only way to win the next war was to wage it as a total war. Yeah. Uh, and of course, as we now know, the, whether we're talking about the Japanese war economy or the uh, 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 German rearmament, and particularly uh, fascist Italy's rearmament, it was it was chaotic mm -hmm. and yeah. uh, filled with uh, bureaucratic competition. Mm -hmm. And um, um, in a lot of ways, certainly British rearmament was a lot more efficient. Yeah, yeah, no, I mean. German yeah, I, mean, I think that's I think that's exactly right. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about something that you know, even I, I you know, I'm kind of a buff on sure. these issues, and I didn't know about this at all. But I thought it was absolutely fascinating. And you know, I think I'd read a book length treatment of it, and that is fighting over steel in the <laughs> in the 1930s in the German wartime economy. It seems like that's all they thought about was yes, how to get more steel. Maybe you could just talk a little about that. Well, and, and indeed, this is the 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 the, the central strategic economy uh, uh, commodity in the economy. Who, if you controlled the steel, you controlled the level of rearmament, and of course, it was also Germany's number one or one of Germany's main exports. And Germany needed to export to uh, uh, gain f uh, foreign exchange to import the raw iron ore to make steel. So it becomes this uh, 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 central bottleneck. This this that that, that keeps. 
uh, a cap on the level of rearming. And of course, everybody's watching this from the outside and understands that and wonders when the Germans are going to actually figure out that they can't win an arms race. But internally, you have this uh, war, really, between the Navy, the, the, the Luftwaffe and the Goering, and the Army over steel. And the economic planners, particularly uh, Georg Thomas, uh, 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 who, who, who runs this, the, 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 the Central Economic Office in the Hitler's War Ministry, um, pulling their hair out, fighting over steel. And steel becomes um, the, the indicator as to whether or not really Germany can win an arms race. And the conclusion that Hitler slowly realizes and concludes first begins to understand by the end of 1937, but certainly does by early 1939, is that Germany cannot win the arms race. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is very interesting because it actually adds flesh to the bones of an argument which is often made because you hear Hitler saying a lot in the late 30s that if we are going to conquer Europe, we have to do it right now. And the reason that he gives is precisely the one you just said. He said, we have a momentary advantage. It will vanish, so we need to go now. And, uh, you know, many of his military advisors do not want to do it. And, as you know, as, as you say, actually in the caption to, to one of the great photographs in the book, you say, you know, he basically bet it all on, um, you know, the invasion of, of France. In this instance, exactly. in May 1940, and he won, uh, much to the surprise of his military commanders. But I just thought it was interesting that, People don't usually think of the kind of nuts and bolts of rearmament, but steel, that was really yeah, that's that the, was really the thing <laughs> right there. That was yeah. the thing that was driving everything, was, was steel. Um, now, uh, I want to talk a little bit about um, an, an interesting uh, implication. You, you, you don't dwell a lot on this, but there, there are a couple of paragraphs about it. And, and let me put it in the starkest possible terms. You, you basically pose the question, what if there were no Hitler? Uh, yes. Would there still have been a uh, major European conflict? And if I read you correctly, I think you say yes, there would have been, not only because the Soviet Union and Germany were very dissatisfied with Versailles, but because, uh, especially in Germany, um, people uh, were kind of, especially, and, and this is the sort of Prussian military establishment, the British love to talk about Prussian militarism, that's yes. how they thought about it, yes, exactly. uh, that they were really spoiling for a fight, that they were, you know, that even without Hitler, it would have gone forward, they would have rearmed and something would have happened. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I pose the counterfactual because uh, um, so much of the history of this period focuses on, on Hitler, and rightfully so. But I think you need to separate Hitler from the wider forces that made Hitler and Nazism possible, and that's, that's really what I, I, I feel my book is about. Um, but if we, if we posit the, the, the notion that there wasn't, you know, there was no Hitler in 1933, instead a military dictatorship came to power, I, I argue that actually you still would have had an arms race and probably something like a sustained Cold War well into the uh, late 1930s and early 1940s. Germany would have rearmed um, precisely for the same set of ideas and reasons that I, that I laid out earlier, that that was the lesson of the First World War. If you were going to be a great sovereign, independent, great power, you had to be able to wage total war. Uh, and you needed to have an, uh, an organized economy. And the generals, had they come to power, that was what they wanted. In fact, that's what makes the marriage between, you know, the way you described it, the, the Prussian military elite and the Nazis possible uh, and made that marriage attractive. But uh, let's, let's supposing the counterfactual and there had been a military dictatorship in Germany, uh, which and I think, and, and indeed, it's, it's exactly what happened. The British and French were 
in a sense, accepted that Germany would rearm because that was the best alternative to what's proved impossible, which was some sort of disarmament agreement, some sort of uh, agreed cap on land and air armaments in Europe. And I think they, uh, um, British foreign policy and military planners, same in France, they, they imagined that it, what would happen is Germany would rearm to a certain level, Britain, France would respond, and some sort of equilibrium would be established. But I'm not sure that an equilibrium would have been established. Uh, and of course, the Soviet Union uh, 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 was arming at full tilt. And what you might have had was some sort of war, again, starting over Poland or Czechoslovakia or something. I think uh, the, the situation would have been dangerous without Hitler. Mm-hmm. If you add Hitler to the mix, then the the combination of Hitler and the arms race makes a big war in Central Europe uh, inevitable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I find that very, very interesting myself. I don't know a lot about um, interwar German politics, but but uh, I'll trust you on that. Well, one of the things sure. that that is um, that is very interesting to me is the um, the ease with which and success with which the various European and let's include uh, European powers and let's include Japan, and the United States, in this. Uh, either succeed in arming efficiently or do not. So on one end of the scale, you seem to have um, a place like Germany where there really is an alliance, it looks like to me, between uh, Hitler, the army, and industry. Mm. Everybody goes forward with this pretty quickly. Um, and then at the opposite end of the spectrum, you have a kind of liberal political culture like France that really looks like a basket case. Yes. What, what, what happened to the French? How, how, why, why were they – well, I guess part of this has to do with um, – the Maginot Line, which you know stands uh, for all time as yes. perhaps the worst <laughs> military idea ever. Um, h- how did they get to that stage, and why couldn't they um, muster the political will or industrial might to create um, what were really modern, effective military forces? Well, uh, 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 part of the answer is that they did. Uh, uh, you know, what is, again, what is the lesson of the First World War? Is that uh, France didn't alone didn't have the wherewithal to wage total war against a fully armed Germany. Uh, and in fact, Germany, or France was facing a demographic crisis by the mid-1930s based on the, 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 the young men lost in the battlefield and the, 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 the low birth rate during the war. They were coming to a point where they were going to have a, a, an increasingly shrinking um, a ma- a trained manpower base. So how do you... How do you uh, uh, wage total war against a, uh, uh, this big Teutonic aggressor across the Rhine who has twice the population and uh, twice the industrial power and, uh, um, and, and what looks like twi- you know, uh, uh, a unified totalitarian regimented society ready to come at you. Well, the best thing to do is build this huge modern wall and, and I don't think any uh, French military planners thought that it was impenetrable as such. In fact, what the original pl- the plan envisaged was that you'd have mobile forces behind the wall to 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 uh, react against any penetration. But the the basic idea is that the Germany would, the German armed forces would pound themselves and uh, uh, weaken themselves by smash trying to smash through the Maginot Line. And in the meantime, France would be able to uh, muster its forces, mobilize, and gain the support of big allies, and particularly. Uh, Britain and the United States, because of course, the, much of the story of the 1920s and 30s is the story of how uh, uh, first United States and then Britain dodge any uh, security alliance uh, with France, and 
I hope my book captures this uh, um, sense that the, the French are constantly looking for that connection abroad to give them um, the, the, the sense of security and the sense of confidence to confront Germany. Um, and that really only comes in, in, in late in the day, uh, in 1938-39. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I remember one of the statistics in, in the book, and that is, it has to do with, and this is something I want to talk about in a second. Sure. Uh, for, uh, French um, aircraft production, which, yeah. was, which was, you know, France is an industrialized power, and they have smart folks over there in a great educational mm. system, and, you know, they build good planes, but they weren't building very many of them. Uh, at least not not in the mid '30s. Not compared to the. Ger- I, mean, I think if I remember correctly, the Germans were building something five or six thousand, and the British were building four, and the that's uh, right. and the French were building three hundred. <laughs> yes, that's right. Well, um, and again, we're back to the politics of rearmament. What what kind of society uh, uh, do you have, and what kind of society do you need if you were going to rearm on a large scale? And when the Popular Front under Bloom is elected in, in 1936, one of the first things they do is introduce the nationalization of the arms industry, particularly the aircraft industry. And this was actually the right decision because the decision to uh, begin to centrally plan and lay out a vast interconnected aircraft industry is what ultimately results in the recovery of the French aircraft industry in 1939-40. But early on, this is doing nothing but causing chaos. And it looks like, from the point of view of French industrialists, and particularly the aircraft makers, is that the nationalization plan is the thin thin edge of the wedge of the onset of communism. And so you have them resisting, you have the military planners uh, trying to enforce their will on uh, on the industrialists, and you have um, Pierre Cotte, who's the French Air Force minister, hiding the fact <laughs> that the, the the French aircraft industry is going into a tailspin, and all this results in, in in chaos that really doesn't begin to sort itself out and bed down and begin to recover until thirty eight to thirty nine. Well, I found that a very very interesting part of the book. All right, I want to um, focus our attention just for a second on something uh, a little bit more uh, guns and tanks and planes. Sure. It's a question that I've always had. Uh, There was a kind of um, bomber mania in the late 1920s and early 30s. Can you explain that to us? Because we know in uh, hindsight that it turns out that strategic bombing, while it does do some things, uh, they're not terribly savory, nor are they very militarily effective. Well, uh, um we're, you know, we're, in a sense, we're back to the First World War. Why, why, did, why did Germany lose the war, uh, and why did France almost lose it, and why did the Soviet Union collapse into, into revolution and chaos? And that's that you know, the home fronts broke. This is the, what everyone assumes, that they, uh, if, if, if the people behind the lines can't survive the deprivations of war, then, then internal collapse results, and uh, what you try to do is outlast your opponent. Well, one way that um, early on that uh, military theorists understood the advent of the aircraft gave you a way of attacking civilian populations uh, um, uh, readily and easily and in a way that would cause panic uh, on the home front. In other words, if you could cause a revolution, uh, you could collapse your enemy from within 
early through the exercise of air power. And of course, this is all very theoretical in the sort of the, uh, the, 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 the wire and uh, uh, wooden biplanes certainly didn't have the power to do this. But everyone assumed with the advent of technology, you get to a point where you could affect an, uh, a knockout blow. You could you know, pummel London, Berlin, Paris, Rome, whatever, uh, whichever city, and you could bomb it with gas and high explosive at a rate that would cause the civilian population to revolt against its own government and sue for peace. So the, the, the theory of the, the knockout blow becomes a universal fear and a universal threat. And of course, this is exploited by, by Germany early on. Um, the the, the, the Hitler-Göring um, and the Luftwaffe planners understood the threat and the fear of bombing abroad, and they knew if you could manipulate the image of the Luftwaffe as a force capable of uh, delivering a knockout blow, well, that would actually deter uh, certainly France and Poland from launching any sort of uh, preventative war to prevent Germany from rearming. So, um, you know, and again, the 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 idea is 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 uh, goes beyond Europe in. Uh, Japan, um, the, 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 the chief, um, uh, the, this clique of total war officers, as I described them earlier, well, they believe you need Manchuria and all the uh, raw industrial raw, raw materials of Manchuria to be able to churn out aircraft by the tens of thousands because the next war is going to be fought between huge armadas of city-destroying bombers. And, you know, what's... Roosevelt's weapon of choice when it comes to uh, first the idea of containing and then eventually fighting the Axis powers. Well, that's that's the bomber, the aircraft. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, what did they were they were they interested in the notion of strategic bombing in the sense that they were going to only attack military uh, uh, um, targets, or were they, uh, or was this just a kind of um, cover for what we would now call terror bombing? Uh, it was a cover. For, well, it, it, it depends on. on uh, 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 no one had the technology really to do the sort of uh, you know, precision targeting of uh, uh, industrial centers and railway lines and that sort of thing that uh, uh, some, some Air Force planners uh, talked about. No one had that capacity. What everyone was really planning if you were going to attack um, uh, uh, cities was you were going to terrorize the civilian population. Of course, the, from the point of view of uh, the the, the, the uh, air arms race is that, of course, German military planners were not planning to launch strategic air attacks. They weren't interested in big four-engine bombers. They were interested in air force capable of doing the most important thing from their point of view, uh, which was supporting the army, a tactical, operational uh, air force rather than a strategic bombing force. Although, of course, Goering at times would boast that the air force could, you know, destroy uh, uh, Rotterdam or Paris in a matter of hours. This, this was technically not feasible. But the fear of it, the fear of it is an important part of the story of the arms race. And you need to understand the fear of bombing. Well, the best way to understand the fear of bombing is really to understand stand it in the way in which we, we used to fear nuclear war and the Cold War. That's precisely at the same level of intensity that most people, uh, populations and planners feared uh, the knockout blow delivered by strategic bombers in the 1920s and 30s. Mm -hmm. So now let me come to uh, another combat arm. And I think it's interesting to introduce this in light of what we just said about bomber mania and all the yeah. confidence in bombers. Uh, 
Tell us the story of Billy Mitchell and what he showed aircraft could do to um, ships. If you remember well, this, yes. Well, well yeah. Uh, uh, um. <laughs> you know where I'm going with this? Because they, the, the basic the thing, the question I have is, even though Mitchell shows, as you'll say in yes. a second, that you could actually sink a very large ship with a very cheap aircraft. Precisely. They still, yeah. they still spent a fortune on, <laughs> yes. on these, these big <laughs> ships. I, yes. I, it's it's mind-boggling to me. Anyway, go ahead and talk a little well, bit about and, that. Well, and indeed, even the Japanese who famously, you know, used the aircraft carrier in an innovative way to destroy the American fleet at Pearl Harbor, what was, you know, where, where did they devote their resources to building the world's biggest battleships? Uh, um, yeah, the, the, and again, this is one of the peculiarities of arms races and the way in which international politics is structured and in a sense the symbolic value that can be attached to a particular type of weapon system. And it's not just that big ship admirals want big ships, you know, it's, 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 you know, you look a lot better if you're on the deck of a, of a huge battleship rather than sort of, <laughs> so, you know, on the deck of Ernst's. <laughs> You know, the coning tower of some tiny uh, submarine. It's, 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 it's not just that. It's that how, does, how is power calculated in international politics? Well, for the, the great sea powers, it was through the number of battleships you, com- you, you had at your disposal. And uh, through a series of treaties beginning at, uh, in, with the Washington Treaty in 1922 and all the way up to the Se- uh, Second London Naval Treaty of 1936 – um, international power at sea uh, was codified by the distribution amongst the great powers of tonnage, you know, how many battleships, how many aircraft carriers, how many cruisers you were allowed to build. And um, um, this was an extremely convenient way of calculating and uh, preserving um, uh, um, Anglo-American supremacy at sea is, of course, as the Japanese realized, because they were um, um, both given equality in terms of tonnage, but the Japanese had inferiority, and inferiority uh, at such a level that would allow either the, independently the United States or Britain, in a sense, to veto any move that Japan might make uh, in its own uh, uh, region. Um, and this is resented deeply by a particular faction of the Japanese Navy. Uh, uh, they, you know, called the, the fleet faction, basically those who wanted to do away with the Navy treaties and launch uh, a naval arms race. And of course, the uh, the opponents of the fleet faction in the Japanese Navy said, "Well, this is this is crazy. Why would you? <laughs> we can't win an arms race against either the United States or Britain, and we're going to launch an arms race against both. This this doesn't make any sense at all." Um, and of course, this is precisely what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just, um, I just find it very interesting that someone like you know someone like Mitchell could show that a, really a very inexpensive weapon system could take a very large capital ship down uh, very quickly, yeah. and and which is in fact what happened. I was just thinking uh, about the inc- about the the the, uh, the case of the Bismarck. I have no yes. idea what the Bismarck cost the Germans, but I got to imagine it was a lot. And yes, that thing absolutely. was at sea for two weeks. That's right. Before it was sunk by a plane that was covered with, I, I, uh, what, what was it, uh, canvas. That's right. Can- yeah. <laughs> yeah. Swordfish. Yeah, swordfish, right. It was sunk by a plane that was covered with canvas that probably was, you know, built by craftsmen in, in yeah. Nottinghamshire, uh, you know, the yes, same way they right. built planes in World War One. Well, and, 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 of course, here you have, again, yet another uh, absurdity about German rearmament in the 1930s. 
um, uh, because the big ship admirals were in Germany as well, you know, ignoring uh, uh, the U-boat as a potential weapon or or long-range large aircraft that can go, you know, uh, 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 fly at sea and, and, and launch torpedoes and bombs. Uh, why build these big battleships? Well, uh, and I, I think as I show in the book and, and certainly from my earlier thesis work, the angrier and angrier that Hitler gets at Britain, British rearmament and Chamberlain's interfering, because this is, this is what Hitler wants most from Britain and Germany, to go away, to leave him alone, so he can get on with his project of expansion in Europe. And the deal he wants to make with the British is, well, you know, you get on with your empire, uh, we will build a navy, but we won't challenge you at sea, um, and let us, you know, let us dominate the continent. You know, um, of course, the, the the British are happy to sign a naval treaty with Germany, but not happy at all to let uh, Germany or uh, dominate the continent. And um, in 1937-38, leading all the way up to uh, the celebrated uh, Munich Pact, um, what's Chamberlain trying to do? He's trying to get Hitler to sit at the negotiating table and and and. Uh, uh, put Germany's terms down and, and uh, so that they could be met, so that negotiations could take place. And um, again, you can chart <laughs> over the course of 1937, 38, 39, that the, 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 the more effort that the British are putting in trying to appease, in other words, negotiate an end to the arms race and some sort of uh, a, a program of peace and stability for Europe, the angrier Hitler gets. And how does he react? Not by ordering more tanks to sort of sweep into the Ukraine, but by saying, I want, you know, six sixty thousand ton battleships armed with 18-inch guns. You know, of course, these things are going to take a decade to build. And uh, the absurd, in other words, you know, the levels of absurdities and contradictions uh, that get built that, that that Hitler creates as he realizes that he's trapped by the arms race. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the again, I hope one of the interesting stories of the the, the book is that how you have all of these schemers who come up with fascinating ideas about how they're going to win the arms race, but the arms race itself defeats them at every turn. You know, Hitler, uh, well, the the the, the, the Japanese total war officers think that you know you can conquer Manchuria, turn it into a big military industrial complex, and then um, um, you know you can outarm the Soviet Union at least in the, the Far East. Of course, what they don't realize is the Soviet Union is immediately going to react and try to outarm them, and indeed that's exactly what happens. Hitler assumes that he can uh, uh, rearm Germany, and everybody else is going to stand still and let him get ahead. And of course, that's exactly what doesn't happen. Everyone arms with sufficient speed and resources to frustrate German rearmament. The arms race uh, frustrates Hitler's plans for conquest, but it also frustrates the plans of those around him in Britain and France who are trying to stop him, to deter him and force him to the negotiating table because Hitler refuses to accept the fact that he's lost the arms race and therefore launches a big war. No, that's interesting, and that's exactly where I want to go with the discussion. One of the impressions that you might get um, by simply looking at, you know those maps that they sometimes have on the History Channel that show um, Germany in 1939 and then Germany yes. in 1940, or the German yes. Empire in 1940, and then in 41, and then toward 42 where they're all the way to the Caucasus. And you, know, you might get the impression uh, that um, the Germans were really much, much better prepared and armed than the people they fought. Uh, but I think reading your book 
that's not quite true, is it? No, no. I, I, you know, I mean, <laughs> you know, a student asked me when did you know when did Germany uh, lose the arms race, and I said 1933. Yeah. And <laughs> they, they can't win. It's just yeah. it's it's. Yeah, the, yeah. The, the, what, you know the the whole game is stacked against them, and this is you know when you understand that so much of the response of the powers around Germany makes good sense. What mm-hmm. doesn't make sense uh, uh, is Hitler's continued attempts to pursue military supremacy. Um, the the um, uh, and, and and part of understanding this, of course, is understanding just how big of a fluke it was that Germany won the Battle of France in the summer of 1940. Yeah. I mean, I'm not the first to, to have written about this. Uh, uh, Ernest May in, in, in English wrote a, a fantastic book called Strange Victory. Um, just to uh, 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 um, make readers understand how odd it was that Germany won. Uh, and part of what I show is that part of the reason for that is, of course, the French pl- war plan uh, meshes perfectly with the German one to make sure that the German victory is as big as it is. Mm-hmm. But what I think what a lot of military historians don't understand is that the, 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 the winning the Battle of France changed very little. Oh yes, okay, France is out of the picture. But the larger forces that Germany had stirred up by starting the arms race and then start, by starting the war are still in motion. And the German military planners understand this. They can't win a war in the West and, well, in, in fact, leave the Soviet Union arming uh, uh, in the East. Uh, and even after France has been knocked out, they understand that there's an emerging Anglo-American alliance, and particularly an air alliance. And Britain is outproducing Germany in 1939-40 in aircraft. Mm-hmm. And they're inheriting... All the aircraft ordered by France from American aircraft uh, 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 factories. In other words, the war that German military planners understand they're going to fight in the West is going to be on a scale that they already know they can't win. Mm-hmm. Of course, Hitler's solution to that is, well, we'll just do this this blitzkrieg thing again and we'll do it against the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so after launching one war they can't win, they guarantee their total defeat by attacking the Soviet Union. Yeah, yeah, and I think we know now. I mean, that the Soviets were actually very well prepared, um, amazingly well prepared. Yeah, they, yes. were, they were. I mean, they did very poorly at the beginning. And also, you know, I think we should say that uh, you know you don't you don't want to. Uh, I don't. It's it's always difficult for me to uh, mm-hmm. to to, um, to to compliment uh, the the Wehrmacht about anything, but it does make their achievement in France and then well in Poland and France and then in. Um, in the, in the first stages of the campaign against the Soviet Union, uh, that much more impressive and kind of inexplicable because they really weren't better armed than they the people they yeah. fought. Uh, but, so there was something else going on. Do you know what it was? I, yeah. yeah uh, uh, well, uh, there's two ways of explaining it. One, one way is that simply they had a better sort of uh, uh, operational doctrine. They were using uh, tanks, uh, artillery, Infantry and aircraft in in a way that was synchronized and better. I'm not so sure about that. that's the standard explanation. Yeah, that, that is the standard explanation. Yeah, and I, I'm I'm not I'm not entirely convinced. Radios. Um, that's the radio explanation. That's what I call that. I teach a military <laughs> history class. That's the radio explanation of Blitzkrieg. Yeah, yeah. They had radios. They had radios. The Soviets I, I, didn't put radios in their tanks until later. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, 
uh, when you actually look at, I mean, if you look at the first six weeks of the Battle of uh, France, yes, you know, the, 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 it all looks like this fantastic blitzkrieg and this maneuver and all that. But then once the, uh, uh, the, the, the Panzers start to hit really determined French defensive positions, infantry and artillery uh, 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 working together, well, they halt the, 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 the Panzer advances. And we can imagine that actually happening uh, uh, in in the in the initial Battle of France, had had the two basically elite formations of both armies smashed into each other, then I think they would have fought themselves into a stalemate, and we would be you know writing quite a different history of the Second World War. We would have been you know f- uh, from from then on, uh, I suppose uh, uh, military. Uh, theorists and uh, uh, um, military historians would be uh, um, praising the the excellence of French military yeah, doctrine, yeah, but they they don't, right? They don't because the Germans won. But why did the Germans win? And I think it's because if you imagine the two war plans, the Allied war plan and the German war plan, as two people trying to get through a revolving door, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the 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 best formations of the Allied armies get sent into a you know, mad dash into Belgium while the German army is coming up across the rear, well, that explains the victory. It's, it's yeah. much more of an operational victory than a yeah. tactical one explained by Blitzkrieg or, or as you put it, by the radio explanation. The radio explanation, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a book that I kind of admire, actually I quite admire about um, the, the campaign on the Eastern Front which addresses this question and uh, it's by Omar Bartov. And I, I, can't, yes. I can't remember the name of it though. Uh, it's it's is it Hitler's army or Hitler's or, army? Yeah, I think it, it is. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, and one of the things he points out is that they, uh, you know, that they, they went in with some what we would now call light tanks, but they went yes. in with about a m- two million horses. That's right. You know, they just uh, that the, the thing was not going to move very fast, yeah. uh, and and it didn't move very fast um, by I guess modern sort of desert storm like um, uh, metrics. So you know, when we think of you know, there's a great there's a great kind of myth of 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 German rearmament and German arms and and this sort of thing that they had some sort of great technical advantage and and I just don't think that that is really true at all. Um, they they well, didn't. Yeah. I hope I've debunked that. Yeah. No. I, I think. Yeah. No. I don't <laughs> think that they did. They were they were good at what they they did and, yes. and they were brilliant operationally. But you know, again, it's one of these. Um, you know, one of the things also military historians say about, particularly the war on the Eastern Front, is it didn't take the Soviets a season to figure out what the Germans had done. Exactly. And then they were doing it. And once you do that, you have the kind of, you know, you have the Red Queen effect where you yes. have to run faster to stay in exactly the same place. And the Soviet Union was going to outproduce uh, Nazi Germany, although Nazi production rose during the war uh, still. And, um, yeah, I mean – you know, my students always want to know, what, you know, what was the turning point on, on something like the Eastern Front or World War II? And, you know, I, the, the, I would say the consensus now is it was the winter of 1941. And, Absolutely. When they were stopped. Yeah. And, that, and that really was it because he couldn't reproduce what had happened in, in yeah. France. And because what happened in France was, as you say, a kind of a strange – well, it was a fluke, really. It was a fluke. Yeah, yeah, Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, um, so, so we should stop. We should stop bashing the, the French military about that. That's what I so we should just stop because yeah, the, the, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I don't mean to laugh about it, but the Germans were very lucky, and uh, yeah, yeah, well, lu- yeah, lucky. I mean, nobody who has Hitler as a leader is lucky. So um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yes. So, but in any event, yeah, no. Well, it, you know, it's a ter- it's a terrific book, and I I really I really hope that uh, people go out and read it. It was it was absolutely eye opening for me, and and I want to thank you for taking the time. And we've taken up a lot of your time to to talk about it and I wanted to 
ask our traditional final question on new books sure. in history, Joe, and that is, uh, what, what are you working on now? Uh, well, I, I've, I've sort of alternated between sort of monographs and textbooks, and I'm going to uh, write a textbook, um, I've been asked to write a survey of the 1920s and 30s, the international politics. So that's mm-hmm. um, uh, um, what I'm doing, and that should be out in 2013, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, that, that's a tr- it's a terrific project. It's a complicated... I know that there was a... Um, uh, there's a book called Dark Continent. That, do you know this book? Yes, yeah. yeah that's right. By um, you know, I, I interviewed him and I can't remember his name. Uh, Mark Mazower? Yeah, Mazower. Yeah, um, which, yeah. Which, which deals with this a little bit, and I found it very eye-opening as well because I don't think people really understand what was going on in the 1920s and 30s. We have the kind of Churchillian view of it uh, that uh, that somehow fascism wasn't really attractive to a lot of people. And actually it was really attractive to a lot of people. And, <laughs> it was. And, yes. that, you know, it's embarrassing, but it's, it's, yes. it's true to say. So, well, anyway, I, I wish you luck uh, with that project. We've been talking to Joe Maiolo today about his book, Cry Havoc, How the Arms Race Drove the World to War, 1931 to uh, 1941. Joe, thanks very much for being on the show. My pleasure. Okay. You've been listening to an interview with Joe Maiolo about his new book, Cry Havoc, how the arms race drove the world to war, 1931 to 1941. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week.